That's right, from Hollywood, the place where movies are made, Hollywood things are done, everything is... <sighs> I'm sorry, I've lost the bit. I, I think we need to change the music track. What? Yeah, thank you. We've, we've done four of these, and we should just sort of up, our, up ourselves with the times. It's a great music track, now what else are we replacing with? Um, Mark, I think you know what to do. That's right, folks. We've hit 1988. The 80s are in full swing. The Looney Tunes are still making movies. And it is time to cover one of the most interesting movies to talk about with the Looney Tunes. That's right. 1988's Daffy Duck Quackbusters. Oh, my God. First of all, thank you to Ray Parker Jr. and, and Mark for, for that intro. I have nothing but good things to say about Ray Parker Jr.'s song for Ghostbusters. Um, yes. We love him very much. Please don't sue us. No, no. Please do not sue us, Ray Parker Jr. We love that song. And also, please don't sue us, uh, Huey Lewis in the News. We also love I Want a New Drug. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. Um, so, yes. This is the fifth of our um, even even multiple of ten series on the movies of the Looney Tunes, and we've reached the end of the compilation movie experiments that the Warner Brothers studio has been doing, and the fifth and final of these was, of course, Daffy Duck's Quackbusters, a movie that both of us grew up with, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, All thanks to HBO. Oh my god! Like like the first four, to lesser extent, HBO used to rerun Daffy Duck's Quackbusters all the time, and I think this was the one they reran the most because oh yeah, it it was it was very much steeped in the late eighties animation centers, uh, animation circles. It was also steeped in eighties uh, movie culture. And when we were growing up, um, HBO Family aired a lot of great 80s PG movies. And that includes the Short Circuit movies, the first Bill and Ted movie, um, Explorers, I think. Just lots of really good PG kid movies. The Goonies, obviously. And this fit it right in there. I mean, you know, because this was very much 80s culture as well as being, you know, the Looney Tunes. And yeah, this, also with this being the last um, Looney Tunes compilation project, this is really an end of an era as far as these Looney movies go. And there is a lot that Mark and I are very excited to talk about with this one, especially in transitioning oh to the period that will begin with the next movie that we cover in 10 episodes. So, yes. um, oh my God. Gosh. <laughs> so, uh, you hit on it pretty well about where pop culture was in the late 80s. Yes. In that, you know, you had movies like The Goonies, but in terms of Hollywood culture, 
The Hollywood blockbuster really comes into its own by the late 80s. Oh, yeah. Especially in in sci-fi, horror, as well as comedies. Yes. Comedies in the 80s are very good. Everyone from SNL talent to just great script writers, like people like Hale Ramis and Ivan Reichman, just... Really taking the 80s and, and John Landis, just taking the 80s and just putting their best work possible yes. into this decade. Yes. And you could argue that the 1980s are the era of the studio comedy. Mark, without looking at your notes or without looking at um, the internet or anything, could you tell me the number one highest grossing cinematic release of the year 1987? Hmm. 1987. You're allowed to say you don't know, for the record. I I do not know. Okay. Uh, late 80s is not my strong suit. Like mid to early 80s. Okay. I and this is something that has, has always really struck me as odd in going through this decade. Because the 80s, the number one movies of this, uh, of this era, you get movies like Tim Burton's Batman or Ghostbusters or um, Star Wars movies that are your number one blockbusters of the year. 1987. The number one highest grossing movie of that year was a movie called Three Men and a Baby. It is a studio oh, yes. comedy starring three different TV stars at the time, Steve Gutenberg, Ted Danson, and Tom Selleck, directed by Leonard Nimoy, yes, that Leonard Nimoy, and it was the highest grossing movie of the year in 1987, the year that featured so many great movies like... Moonstruck and The Princess Bride and countless others. But that was your number one highest grosser in 1987. A studio comedy could not do that now. The highest grossing movie of a given year in the current climate of the 2020s would have to be either a blockbuster, a franchise film, a comic book movie, something that will appeal to the masses. Comedies do not appeal to the masses anymore. And it's very odd when a comedy, especially a studio comedy, grosses more than $100 million. So that is a picture of the times like nothing else. Three Men and a Baby was number one in 1987. This movie yes. that we're talking about comes out in 1988. And yes. it's a very odd period for the Warner Brothers animation division as well. Because yeah. 19... 85-86 is a transitional period for the studio because in 86, Frizz Freeling leaves Warner, followed by the Warner um, studio head, Hal Jeer. And this is after Fantastic Island. This is after that movie didn't do as well because of it was sort of rushed out after um, 1001 Rabbit Tales. And Warner Brothers Animation, from this period, from 1986 until around 87-88, it doesn't really have an, much of an identity. Like, they've had setbacks. They're not doing a, a great deal. And the important factor in that, because obviously, you know, this is one of the lowest periods of Warner Brothers Animation, and obviously Warner Brothers Animation is still definitely a thing and has sustained to this day. So something in this period had to change and had to sort of be added in in order to you know, lead to the sustenance. I mean, just in the next decade, the TV production uh, company would explode with productions like Tiny Toons, Animaniacs, Batman the Animated Series, and so much more. So, 
What really saves this studio in this period of the 80s is the second generation of the Warner Brother animation saga takes over because Stephen S. Green and later Kathleen Helpy Shipley uh, take over the reins of the studio. They, they both have tenures as president in this era. When Quackbusters is released, Green is the acting and outgoing president and Helpy Shipley is taking over. Speaking of which, Kathleen Helpy Shipley got the gig because she worked her way up from being Frizz Freeling's secretary. So there's a lesson for you folks. Uh, if, you want, if you want to be the president, okay. you got to start low. And once these people take, over, take the reins of the studio, they immediately begin to work on a revitalization of their biggest IP, which is the Looney Tunes. And they begin to hire a lot of newer, younger names, a lot of people who've grown up with the Looney Tunes and know what makes the Looney Tunes work, rather than just relying on the same um, people from the Golden Age. They, they want new blood. Exactly. And put in context where the Looney Tunes themselves were, as if they're real people. Um, there was still a syndication with the Bugs Bunny and Tweety show. Yes. But in terms of big projects, there weren't any. No. Um, you know, they appeared in advertisements for such pro products as KFC, <laughs> uh, Sony VCRs, yes. the Warner Brothers catalog. It's... Yo, oddly enough, where the Looney Tunes were in the late 80s is very similar to where they would be about 20-something years later in the uh, yeah. early, mid-2000s. Yes. Although they were on TV at that point, but they were just striking out over and over. And we'll, we'll cover that eventually when we right. cover like Baby Looney Tunes and Lunatics um, Unleashed and stuff like that, which that'll be fun. Yes. But, um, yeah, yeah. But um, one of the sort of people that they enlist to help revitalize the IP is someone who had actually joined Warner in 1985 and had sort of been working his way up for years before. And that is Greg Ford, who is very important to talk about if we're talking about Quackbusters. Greg Ford came up as a Looney Tunes historian, essentially. In the 1970s, he was doing interviews with all of the big names from the Warner Golden Age, including Chuck Jones, Chris Freeling, Bob Clampett, pretty much everybody that had a stake in things. And he was doing interviews for historian projects, for what would eventually become Bugs Bunny Superstar, which he would be given a special thanks credit on. And he was just working his way up from the archivist historian angle, an angle he would basically be all in for the rest of his career. And yes. in 1985, he joins Warner Brothers, which is which you know is a crucial point for his career, crucial point, crucial turning point for Warner. And Greg Ford is one of the people tasked with taking on and spearheading some short form and later longer form Looney projects. Because what the Warner people discover very soon on is that Greg Ford understands what made the Looney Tunes work from the anecdotal historian perspective, but he also understands gag work. He understands fundamentals of comedy. And if anybody could make a full-length Looney project work from this new generation, it is Greg Ford because he is so footed in the original generation. He is the best of both worlds, really. 
And so he's basically put on the the long term, the, the longer form theatrical loony project that they're working on with a co-director named Terry Lennon. Yes. Uh, now, Terry Lennon, he came onto the scene in 1980 as an animator. He worked on the previous Looney Tune films, A Thousand Rabbit Tales, Fantastic Island. And it is in 1987 that they partner up for the first time in a uh, Daffy Duck short called The Doctor Sist, which right. is something that we'll get into a little bit later because that is a short that is in this product. Right. And as this film began to take shape, it became clear that the Warner Division was working with sort of a lot of a mishmash of different elements from various points in the Warner Brothers animation mythos. Um, they had Mel Blanc. This was a year before Mel Blanc's passing, and Mel Blanc was still definitely an, a an active voice actor. He was also beginning to compile vocal work for what would become the Jetsons movie, I believe. Um, so he was still working, and they did use him as the primary vocal artist for Quackbusters. However, because of his years of smoking, because of the fact that he was approaching his 80s, his voice was a bit weaker here than it was at his peak. And so for some yes. more of Daffy's more manic vocal moments or any sort of yelps or screams, they had to defer to archive footage. Which, yeah. yeah. And also, by around this this point in uh, in history, people knew who Mel Blanc was. Yes. Definitely by the mid to late 80s, Mel Blanc was a household name, thanks to appearances on The Tonight Show. He was on David Letterman to promote A Thousand One Rabbit Tales. Mm -hmm. Also, we should have voice actors back on late night talk shows again. Those are so much fun to watch. Yes. In um in the seventies, in early seventies, did American Express commercials, and so by this point, he is still very much an actor in demand. Yes, and if you're the next generation of Looney Tune fans who are now in charge of the Looney Tunes, if you have the opportunity to use Mel Blanc, you're gonna use Mel Blanc. You're not just not gonna use him yeah. if he's willing and able to do it. No, I mean, this is still in the era where, this is before Tiny Toons, this is before people like Charlie Adler or Joel Lasky or um, John Cassier get involved with the character. Mel Blanc is still very much the premier Bugs Bunny and the premier Daffy Duck. There are not other quote-unquote imitators coming in around this time. He is still the go-to. So if they can get Mel Blanc, they will, and they did. Yeah, he, he voiced them in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yes. Which, as we'll go into this movie, I have some questions about when things were recorded, but we'll get there when we get there. Right. Another name to know in, in getting into the formation of Quackbusters is the name Hal Wilner, who was another sort of archivist friend of, of Greg Ford's. And Hal Wilner was the official music coordinator of this movie. What he was in charge of doing, because he was sort of a chronicler of Carl Stalling's music at this point, was his job was to essentially take archived Stalling, Franklin, Bill Lava tracks 
from old school um, Looney Tunes cartoons and splice them into the movie and pick exactly which ones would be needed at specific points in this movie. There would not be a yes. modern mu music coordinator. There would not be a new like someone who would be making music specifically for the film. They would be using archive which, stuff. Which again is such a Looney Tunes fan move. Mm -hmm. We have the tapes of the original composers. Let's use them. Mm -hmm. And that works well in some places and others. Eh, yeah. We'll no. get into it later. But Hal Wilner is actually an interesting chap. Um, uh, <laughs> in this era, um, since 1980, his uh, Hal Wilner's day job would be um, as the musical coordinator for uh, Saturday Night Live, a job he would hold until his passing in 2020 due to COVID complications. Any sort of archived music track or music selection you would hear in an SNL sketch from 1980 until 2020, that was all how. You know the sketch oh, where it's Will Forte dancing around in a locker room to the Casino Royale theme? That was how. Mm -hmm. Hal was a good friend of pretty much everybody who had worked on the show from the late eight, from the mid eighties until 2020. And they all spoke at length about how fun and how good to hang out with and how great of a guy he was. And that was not the only corner of popular culture that Wilner was big into because Wilner's big gig in this period was creating compendiums or like tribute al albums to like you know famous composers and musicians and stuff he was doing compendiums for carl stallings music at the time you know that's why he was here he was also doing a lot of like you know like like getting a lot of different musical artists together to do like covers and tributes to like uh a lot of different um i think i think he did one for charles mingus uh he did one for the music of the disney films there's a very cool i, I sent this to you mark a very cool yeah, cover did. of when you wish upon a star done by uh, Ringo Starr and Herb Albert. That is very cool. If you want to play that, a little bit of that in here, that'd be pretty cool. I think the masses need to hear it. When you wish upon a star Makes no difference who you are Anything your heart desires Will come to you Um... Hal was a music mind of that you not do not find often at all. Um, he was also apparently an amazingly fun person in real life. And the fact that his name is on the credits of this is incredibly cool. Yeah. So shit, I just realized that I just realized that it was him. Mm-hmm. Oh, damn. Yeah, because because uh, we watched the uh, how tributes when they when they did on the yeah they did so that that was that was very cool yeah that uh, if yeah if you if you love music and you love comedy you love how and so but um the pieces were in place for this movie Warner Brothers was behind it pretty much a hundred percent of the way um. And so Quackbusters was released in theaters on September 24th, 1988. On this day in history, Carl Lewis sets the world record for running the 100-meter dash in 9.92 seconds. Heathers was in theaters. I love that movie. And the number one song in the U.S. was Bobby McFerrin's Don't Worry, Be Happy, while the number one song in the 
while the number one song in the UK was Phil Collins' A Groovy Kind of Love. Advantage, US. That's one of the few Phil Collins songs I don't love. So, Well, when it's the 1980s, I'm using the word groovy. <laughs> Come on, Phil. The, 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 only, the only artist who is allowed to sing the word groovy is, um, is any Scooby-Doo product. That's the only, <gasps> only time the word groovy. <gasps> I think Shaggy sang a better groovy song um, in Alien Invaders. Oh, yes. 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 And now I'm putting that song in. Oh, come on. <laughs> Don't. We're going to have a lot of music oh, no, cues no. in this friggin' episode. Everybody's going to be suing us. Ray Parker Jr., Ringo uh, Starr, Shaggy. <laughs> like, I'm getting my lawyer on the phone. <laughs> Alright. So. Say you're not going to sue him. Would you do it for a Scooby snack? <laughs> Scooby's this right, lawyer. So. Okay. Oh my God. Okay. So. Before we get into Quackbusters itself, it's interesting to note that, like with the Looney 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 Bugs Bunny movie, Warner Brothers included a short at the top of this movie. And we're going to cover that first. Yes, we are. And unlike Looney Looney Bugs Bunny movie, this isn't an Academy Award winning short. No. It's not even a short that's been previously made. No. The movie begins with a brand spanking new short. Called The Night of the Living Duck. Exactly. And yes, this was made specifically for this movie. Um, just as a sort of a thing to whet the appetite of the, of the audience. Um, it's also important to note that this in cartoon includes a special appearance by Mel Torme. Which we will get into as we cover it. But, yeah. Night of the Living Duck has the same uh, release date as the movie, so I don't need to do more um, on this day shit for it. No, you don't. Okay. And this was directed and ran by Greg Ford and Terry Lynn. Yes. And the rest of the movie was. Exactly. Um, the opening mat shot of the credits, or after the credits, is just a load of comic book covers. My favorite of which being just one that's called Nut. <laughs> Nut. The story of, of the super... Is this is his superpower uh, premature ejaculation? <laughs> no, no. Ah, evil do it. Oh. Give me a sec. Um, I'll be right with you. <laughs> also, um, on the covers of some of these magazines, there's G Ford and uh, Robert Gibbons, mm. which is uh, which is Bob yes. uh, Gibbons. So there, there, there's some. Nice little shout-outs to uh, the crew work up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this opening clues us into two details that foreshadow what we're getting into with the film. One, man, this animation is really nice. <laughs> it's clean. It? It's, there's lots of new assets, new technology, new people, new animators. It looks clean and fresh and colorful and more inspired than the very minimalized assets of the previous couple of Freeling films. Yeah. And the other thing this uh, short illuminates almost immediately off the bat is, man, no blank staffy sounds rough. <laughs> 
Like, yeah. It illuminates how much Mel Blanc has aged. Yeah. He... Also, also, um, the short begins with Daffy Duck reading comic books. Yes. Not just comic books, but um, horror comic books, yeah. which establishes two things. Number one, I love that throughout the decades, even going back to Great Piggy Bank Robbery, hell, even going back to book review even, mm-hmm. that Daffy Duck is a comic book person. Yeah. He really loves comic books. Of course. And so nice. Also, because uh, they're all horror comics, um, Daffy Duck is a monster kid. Yes, he is. So um, we we know some great podcasts he could listen oh, to. Oh, there's tons. Tons. Oh, my God. Can you imagine Lewis and Brandon having him on? <laughs> the gory picture. Now, Daffy, I'm going to unzip for a moment. Like, no, wait, no, that's Shag again. Don't, don't include that. <laughs> like, I'm here too. <laughs> uh, we. The Gory Picture Show. That's a podcast that Gabby can listen to. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, listen to Gory Picture Show and also Varicon and also any of the fine Monster Kid podcasts that are in that network. Anyway, we do have a, a movie to talk about. <laughs> Um, ah, yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, already, we have a very odd sort of incongruence between, because we have new animation, classic Carl Stalling music in the background, and a war-weathered Mel Blanc voice. A lot of these pieces, at least here, don't fit together. But, but it would, while it doesn't quite fit together here, there's moments in the film itself that I, I, I would argue are worse. Yeah. So, I'm... I'm kind of okay with how it is here. Okay. Well, this was just getting into the whole, like, like you know, this was, you know, it's, it's telling me how the film's going to be. And yeesh. Exactly. But, um, okay. So as as Daffy is sort of knocked out and thrown into a dream and dragged on stage in this sort of monster nightclub we're about to see, we hear the very familiar music cue from Showbiz Bugs. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, And... Within seconds, we know what this cartoon is. Daffy, in this dream, is stuck being a cabaret singer for monsters, all of which look really well stylized and interesting, and there's some great animation in just some of the monsters in the audience. And then Daffy puts in a little spray, a little eau de torme, and voila, Mel Torme does the singing for him for a little while, uh, which I, I would have preferred Diana DeGarmo. But... Uh, yeah, um... <laughs> Did you want to establish who Mel Torme is? Mel Torme uh... is a crooner from the 1950s. He plays very well into 1950s and 1960s pop music culture. Um, I know him because he was the villain in the Mystery Science Theater movie Girls Town, <laughs> also starring Paul Anka. Um, very much a, a teen idol type guy that sort of matured into a wonderfully voiced crooner in the in the sort of same guys as people like Frank Sinatra. Um, ben was perfect for 1950s and 1960s culture. And Mark... And I believe this... Yeah? No, I was just going to say, and Mark completely missed my fairy idol reference. Oh my... Which I would prefer... Diana DeGarmo, yes. 
Oh my. Yes, I, I now I, I just listened to, to Mel Dremay sing Give Me the Wand. Oh my god, yeah. Is that what you want? Can you imagine Norm MacDonald doing the, the um the lounge singing for this one? Yeah, uh, monsters that leave such interesting lives. Yeah. Also crack whore. Um There's a lot of monsters in the audience. OJ Simpson is not one of them. <laughs> Um, also, uh, also, um, also, a Looney Tunes part, because we've, we've discussed, uh, crooners on the show before, oh, you know, yeah. Swooner Crooner, for instance. This is the first instance of a Looney Tunes project actually getting a legitimate crooner yes. to be in a Looney Tunes project. Yes, we've wow. come a long way from the 1940s, I think. Um, and I'm glad that Mel Torme agreed to do this because this is a really fun number. This monsters lead interesting, lead such interesting lives song. Um, Which that's got to be a pull from Harry's in here. Oh, it totally is. There's, I it's got to be. But this, I mean, I love the yeah. lyrics to this song. I love that it's very much in the vein of a lot of like just lounge singer songs of that era. And Mel Torme is really into it, like. <laughs> It's a it's a funny song. There's great lyrics, but Mel Torme just brings it. They're drenched in blood or caked with mud. You yell and scream when one of them arrives. There is no denying monsters lead such interesting lives. They live in ooze, they've paid their dues. No brothers, sisters, moms, or dads are wise. Yeah. No, I, I like it a lot. There's a lot of charm to it, to, to him singing as Daffy. And it there's just, there's lots of little monster gags. There, there's a little warning, don't try this at home label as Leatherface whips out that. a chainsaw to cut his steak. Um. And also, one of the sort of cutaways to Monsters features an Alfred E. Newman cameo. The hell? <laughs> I was not expecting that crossover. Cause sure. Hey, you know what? I'm not. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I was like, what the fuck is he doing here? <laughs> Shouldn't he be? I don't know. Uh, Looking for work? Yeah. Oh. Oh, I made it sad. Oh. And so after this song wraps up, Daffy is just going around and does some very easy monster puns that cracks up the room that must have been left over from the Groovy Ghoulies special because <laughs> they're very boilerplate uh, monster puns. Well, it is his dream, so of course he's killing. Oh, yeah, no, of course. until He's, he's killing until, Smog, until he pisses off Smogzilla, which I love the pan up to see how big Smogzilla is. This is clearly a preview of a lot of the sort of scope um, um, animation stuff they would, that this, a lot of the same division would do for Cats Don't Dance. So it's yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I like. Also, I, 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 I just love the slam. It's a good slam by Daffy because 
for some reason, Daphne's just ripping into Godzilla mm-hmm. or Godzilla, whatever. It just says, oh, what's the matter? The public not buying those cheap special effects anymore? <laughs> Damn, Daffy! Yeah, and this was even before Godzilla 98. Yeah. That was calling him out on their bullshit in yeah. freaking 88. So obviously Smugzilla gets mad and and starts, like, you know, I think he, I think he eats Daffy. And, um, and of yes. course, we get some recycled Mel Blanky Alps from the 50s as Daffy wakes up. Yes, from uh, Duck Amuck. Yes, uh, I believe it's the section where he loses his he loses his mind with the black boy mm-hmm. and and rips up. Yeah. It, it, it's from that section, right. which again, Mel's old. You can't have him, you know, doing yelling, and hollering. Yeah, it, so like, it, it's understandable, but it's like he could have gotten Noel to do it. Noel was working then. Yeah, Maybe yeah. Noel wanted too much money. Um, and I love this sort of Clampett-esque ending back in Daffy's room where he's sort of motioning over to the comic book mockingly. And it's like, ah, Smug, Smugzilla. And Smugzilla literally looks out of the comic book and in German accent goes, you're expecting maybe Calvin Coolidge? <laughs> That's a Clampett <laughs> ending. It's honestly even an Avery ending, really. I expected a full on boo. Which, funny enough, I think that's like the one sound effect that's not in this movie. Yeah. Is the Bob I was expecting one of those. Not nowhere to be seen in the movie. Even in sequences where they just play a ton of sound effects. Mm-hmm. No Bob Clamp at a whoop. No. Damn. So, Night of the Living Duck is decent. Um, yeah. It's well animated. It's cute. Creative, clever. It's it's halfway between the golden age and the new era, and there's only so many good gags. There's a couple that don't work as well as they should. Um, but I like it, and I liked Mel Torme bringing it as as Daffy's singing voice. So this this is all right. Yeah, it's good advertising on the type of humor that has to come from this movie. Mm-hmm. So I give I give Night of the Living Duck a three out of five. Same. Okay. Yeah. Glad we got that settled. Okay. Um, and anything else before we go into the movie itself? Nope. Okay. So in, going into the movie itself, the opening credits are scored entirely by archive music. You know, it's very clearly, it's it's a, a pre-animated sort of Daffy Duck walking around a background and sort of cueing into the, the title of the movie. Even like in a parody of the Ghostbusters-esque like no ghosts signal right off the gate, right off the gate, mm-hmm. and also, um, compared to the last Daffy Duck uh, featured uh, film we saw, I, I know we brought it up, but my God, fluid animation! Yes, holy shit! Mm-hmm. Like he pushes through the F's in his name, and the F's in like three D textured animation flip open and close like. Uh, like saloon doors. It it helps getting good animators on this. <laughs> it's very nice. And I, there's some fun credits gags, like the special appearance by Bugs Bunny as himself <laughs> credit with big booming music, followed by the tiny and starring Daffy Duck credit scored by the little um, uh, flea circus music from Showbiz Buzz, I believe. Or not, no, yeah, I think that's it. Or one of those. So already... Already, just from the credits, 
you know that the right people are on this. And also, in between the credits, we get sequences of daffy street peddling and selling outdated products like DeLorean cars that break easily and <laughs> Billy Beer. Uh, hey, for anyone listening to this in 2021, you remember Jimmy Carter's brother had a beer um, uh, company for a while and it was Billy Carter Beer. Remember that, folks? Neither do I. Oh, These, it, it existed for one brief year. Yes, one, one, year one glittering existed, instance. And it, it made, these jokes may have made sense in 1988, other than, I mean, they, they don't make as much sense in 2021. Um, and we also, I, I always really liked the sticky glue bit from when I watched this as a kid, because of the joke construction of it, where we, we, we sort of know there's this cow hanging at all points, that the, and that the glue works, and then we learn that it works too well, with Daffy getting it all but stuck to himself. And then we see, we pan up again and see the cow is going to fall off eventually, so it doesn't work enough. So it's just very good joke construction on that. Yeah, so so do, do you like how the opening sequence is kind of intercut with the uh, credits? I think it's interesting. I, I, it's a different approach. Yeah. But, but, but what I did notice is when when Daffy's a, a, a door salesman, he opens the door and Daffy's like pitching this thing at a really fast rate. I don't know if it's because it was actually sped up, but I don't know if that was new Melplank audio or taken from a short. I'm not sure either. Also, um, Mel. Uh, Mel Tormann uh, gets a credit. Yes, in, in after this. the um, cartoon he was featured in. Yeah, yeah, his role in the film has included. Yes, there's, there's no more of him. He still gets a credit though. So it's like it's like the Aust- it's like Austin Powers too, including Elizabeth Hur- Hurley in the opening credits after she's already gotten blown up. <laughs> exactly. You know, special appearance by I mean, um. So getting into it, we segue uh, first into Daffy Dilly, which fixes us right up with um, Daffy street peddling. So basically, the way they've designed this movie, they've made it like really, like they've they've started with the shorts and they basically designed the rest of the film around them. And so they've worked in like a lot of elements of them, and it's it's really good sort of you know um, wraparound writing because it's it's very consistent with the rest of the yeah. film. Yeah, and also this is a really good short that's yes. frankly underseen. I mean, this was definitely my introduction to Daffy Dilly. Yeah, and it's really underrated. And the one thing I love about what they do with this short, the, the the new guys, is that we're directed to a television broadcast about JP Cubish, and the anchor is the archived audio of the radio broadcast of Mel Blanc from the original cartoon. So they've updated it for the new generation. That's smart and clever and proof that they're really using the right sort of firepower here. But yeah, no, Daffy Dilly is really good and it sets up the entire rest of the movie with this sort of, you know, with with Daffy being this sort of laughing clown for rich guy J.P. Cubish. Yeah. And and, and just a quick rundown of gags I loved here. Um, 
When Davy arrives at, at JP's house, there's a trash can that says, throw dirty money here. <laughs> and, you know, this quick thing, it's like, the butler leads Daffy out of the house to a door that's in the house that leads just to outside. Yeah. Who has that door that leads to that. Hey, you never know when you might need one. There's a there's a lovely chimney gag. Oh, I love that. And, and how Daffy gets rid of the butler is just great eccentric Daffy. <sighs> he just becomes, he becomes a detective. Yes, ah, I love that. Like, he solves the mystery. Tropical I Nights. Love it. Tropical nights, romance, and a heavy bank account. <laughs> so good. Jackie, a.k.a. Jacqueline, a.k.a. Uh, so and also, it's just great energy. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, something in, in the previous shorts, in, in the previous movies, like uh, A Thousand One Rabbit Tales, for instance, we don't go, we don't really get going until about halfway in that movie. Here, based off the energy of Daffy Dilly, we are off. We, we're not waiting for the story to begin. It has begun. Yes. We, we, we're not dillying around here. Yeah. I, I said the word by accident. So, yeah, that, we take from the end of Daffy Dilly, where, where Daffy is Cubish's personal laughing boy, and we lapse time, and we sort of go on with new footage of, you know, Daffy doing these repeated pie gags for Cubish's pleasure and I love how the laughing slowly fades as we fade to back and that's how we learn that Cubish has died. I love that they did yeah. that. Also I think the loud laughing is the hardest Mel had to perform for this film. Yes, definitely. But he was able to. Yeah. And the caveat of this is that Daffy gets the money but by the will must only exercise the free spirit of American enterprise and display honesty in all business affairs, which we know Daffy isn't going to do. And no, no. And it's, it's, it's very amusing seeing him lie to himself and lie to the business people. It's like, Oh yeah, of course. And the hook of the film at which we learn the scene afterwards in his office with, is that the more selfish Daffy is, the more Cubish robs him of his money from beyond the grave, which is a great concept. Yes. And what I love is that the good deed Daffy chooses to do, how we get to ghostbusting, oh, yes. is based, is bent on revenge at a dead man. Yes. Now, okay, obviously we need this plot to have a movie, mm-hmm. but as established when JP comes back, JB can hear Daffy. Mm-hmm. So JB knows Daffy's doing this as like, yes, it's a good deed, but he's doing it out of spite, yes. out of revenge. Like, like <laughs> he's doing this for as a service to the community. So, but he's still robbing the community of ghosts, which means he's trying to get rid of Cubish. So he's barely c- servicing the community. He's servicing himself. As he says, he says it right here. It's supply and demand. They supply the ghosts. I demand the money. So no one's really benefiting more in this than Daffy. And and I think he must think that this is still going to fool Cubish somehow. But maybe it's because he's Daffy. He hasn't really thought it through. But again, if, if, if Cubish were to go... No, you can't do that. Then we don't have a movie. Yeah, so. but I'm glad he kind of lets him. Because, you know, there's a nice, there's a lot of running gags with the, the movie. 
And literally the first of these, because it's, it's kind of thing like, you know, every time the money goes away, lightning strikes, we see inside the safe of just money disappearing. Like, like there's a meta joke yes. where Daffy's checking his watch and saying, you know, Bugs was supposed to be here an hour ago. And as the lightning strikes, we hear a, not again, from rapid fire. Oh. That was, I thought that was new. No, no. Oh. It was archived from Dreams. the Rabbit Trilogy. The first of many, mm. as we would, uh, as we're going to find out. Yes. Um, and who shows up finally in a Daffy Duck-led movie but Bugs Bunny? It is good to have Bugs and Daffy in the same frame again. Yeah. And, and yeah. Mel can still do Bugs. Oh, yeah. No, his Bugs is It's fine. a little... His bugs. I mean, as as Mela said, uh, he owes bugs his life yes. essentially. Mm-hmm. So of course he's primarily his entire career. Like, okay, I can let some voices go. I can't have my bugs be bad. I've I've done too much. It, it, my bugs has to still be amazing. And even in '88, it's still great. <sighs> it's. And, and there's a lot of really good back and forth lines between Bugs and Daffy. It's, it's just some good. This is a sequence where Daffy tries to fool Bugs and, and and have him take the job by sort of getting like false teeth and messing up his hair and 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 making himself uh-huh. look like a like a ghoul of some sort or like a vampire. Yes. And it's funny enough on its own, but it's even better when you realize what it's leading to. Yes. Because also. Yeah. Also, I just love, uh, there's just some lines from Daffy that I love. Um, first of all, Daffy mentions uh, people seeing men from Mars, which uh, Marvin the Martian has de- not, has declined to be in this picture. <laughs> He's. There's. Also, it's just the reason. Yes. No, a lot of the. Either. A lot of the people that are honestly attributed to only one director, like Fritz, like um, Yosemite Sam or Marvin the Martian. A lot of the villain characters, even even Elmer Fudd, kind of isn't in this movie. Um, but they didn't need that sort of you know villainous presence because they have you know all the things we're going to be running into here. Yes, and just uh, Daffy saying you know, why he should hire Bugs. Just the public will listen to you. Of <laughs> a vertible pentagon of wholesome family entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. Which boy, if that. That feels something that's still relevant. Did there's something in there about having certain performers be on the front lines to do something because people like them? It's I don't know. There's something in it that yeah. that still connects to this. Yeah, thing. definitely. Also, there is a lovely um, when Daffy is messing with bugs in the in the background. There's a little bit of a usage of hocus pocus. From Transylvania 65,000. Foreshadowing. Yeah, foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Wow. Very nice. And so nice. after dealing with bugs, he flips through the phone book and finds uh, another, you know, backup, another Patsy in Porky Pig. And we get Daffy interviewing Porky at Porky's house. And the switch from new animation at Porky's to the prize pest isn't exactly seamless, 
But it's great that they went for the fine details of remaking the background and making it look as good, as oh close as possible. Man, you could have told me they went to the archives and found the background to this. Yeah. And, and I totally believed it. It's such a one-to-one. Mm-hmm. And, and this isn't the only classic cartoon background where they either recreated it or just gotten it. Because, uh, yeah, again... You can tell this is a movie made by the fans. Oh my god! Yeah. Only, only a production made by fans would go this far to yeah. uh, to do things. And how Ford and Lennon like set up the whole vampire teeth bit in the previous scene, and then have the prize pest happen, where Daffy uses that on Porky to just scare the shit out of him and lead to yeah. some even more really good stuff here. That's great. That's yeah. great thinking ahead and writing, knowing what you're working with. Yes. And this is a great line from Dab here. He says, uh, you may rest assured that if anything happens to you, I'll be well taken care of. <laughs> Again, he's still selfish. That's the thing. He doesn't learn. JP is just letting this happen. It's great. Also, this is our introduction to Mel's uh, Porky voice, his later in life Porky's voice. It's okay. And... It's definitely a bit of a lower pitch, Uh but it's still porky. There will be moments later in the film where it becomes incredibly uh, clear about uh, Porky's voice. Uh But but speaking of, Porky saying, oh, why is that? And then hard cut to audio. That is clearly much more older than 1988, yeah. where Daffy says, because I have a split personality. It's like a whoa. It's, it's not as seamless. I mean, look, the animation is seamless. The vocal work is not a seamless transition. And it's hard to do when you have, you know, Mel at this quality versus Mel at peak quality in the 40s and 50s. But, but we quibble because we care. Right. Also, this has one of the two times that a character will fall apart in a comedic fashion. Oh, yeah! Due to something horrendous. Yeah! <laughs> That's a theme we have here. And I I love that gag, so mm-hmm. I, I'll let it slide. Yeah. And so we have, at, at, at the close of that cartoon, we have Porky moving into the office with Sylvester. And we've established that Sylvester while with Porky is going to be his usual sort of non-speaking self with Porky, which means the easiest voice for Mel Blanc to do isn't even going to show up in any new content this this month. Oh, we'll, we'll hear him. Oh, okay. Well, we, we not, hear him, but like not, from, from archive stuff. Yeah, but like, you know, so just voice being similar to Mel's. Oh, we'll hear. We'll hear Mel. We'll hear it. All right. Actually... Right, I think right here actually. Because we do, we, we do water, water, every hair first. We do, we do, we do a commercial bit where it's just a, a little snippet of water, water, right. every hair, which is the great. Uh, you know, it's yes. it's it's the um, the the bugs waking up and clinging on to various objects and screaming at them. Um, yes. And it's the which is great. It's the first of the three commercials we have in this, and all the, the second half of the mm-hmm. commercial was always the same. And I do love the phone number that Daffy is using for this business and bounce to five 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 Kowak. Right. That's great. And and it's with the commercial that we get a different type of Mel Blanc Daffy voice. Mm-hmm. Because the Daffy voice that's in the commercial and a bit throughout this movie 
is very different than even the Daffy we've had at the beginning of this movie. Hmm. Now, I have a theory. Mm-hmm. And that, so, uh, the, the Doctor Cyst. Mm-hmm. It was made around the time of this movie. Uh, I mean, maybe it was like a double cross-promotion thing. Yeah. I don't know. My guess is yeah. that there were two recording sessions with Mel. One was recorded around the time of the Doctor Cyst, Late 1986, mm-hmm. early 1987. Yeah. The second recording session within late 1987, early 1988. Okay. Um, if I had to guess, this would also be around the time he does Hoover and Roger Rabbit. Right. Well, no, sorry, no, uh, no uh, late 86, 87 is where I think he does uh, Roger Rabbit. Yeah, because it's earlier on because Hoover and Roger Rabbit gestates for a couple of years in terms right. of production. So. I think by the time they hit the second recording session by late 87, early 88, Mel's gone older. He still smokes, I believe. Oh, yeah. Um, and because the Daffy voice is similar to Mel's own, like Sylvester, we've gone over this, how Sylvester's voice is just Mel with a lisp, while Daffy is that voice but sped up. I think that's why Daffy has the worst of it in this film. Mm-hmm. Again, it's just a theory because we do not know for certain no, when this film was recorded. But that's my theory. Right. And that, that's, that's a strong theory. Because it, it, it gets rough. Mm-hmm. It gets rough as we go on. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but after this ad, Daffy lets Sylvester out onto the ledge of their office. Which leads us to hide and go tweet. Oh man, <laughs> which we like. Boy, is my face red for not choosing this short in our uh, literature episode? Yeah, why didn't you choose this short in that one? How foolish of me! Yeah, choose a Bugs Bunny short. You fool! Because I'm such a fool. Because this short is so goddamn oh good. Oh my god, it is excellent. The, so many great gags in this. The, just the simple concept of Sylvester running after Tweety, then running from Tweety when Tweety is, is in hide form, and then not learning is so good. It works every time. Oh, my gosh. And, and there's great lines here. There's, you know, as Sylvester goes out a window, it says, I'll jump. I got a choice. <laughs> Which is a freaking great line. I love it. It is, yes. And uh, and of course, Dale Sylvester, he thinks he's got Tweety. He's like, and to make sure he doesn't get in, I'll lock the door, which, oh no, you know what's going to happen. <laughs> That's great. And then he's just looking for ketchup. <laughs> of course. No. Just the delivery. Oh my God, um, yes. What? No ketchup? <laughs> Well, I guess I just would have to eat you without catch. And then of he gets <laughs> That's in. great. Gets seen. It's freaking oh, great. God. God damn it. Like, I mean, it's, it's, this cartoon's pretty intact. Though, the ending is reorganized to lead us back into the office with a, a brief little piece of reused Tweety animation. Um, but it does lead to Sylvester back in the office, doing his impression of what just happened, which is very Courage the Cowardly Dog-esque. <laughs> I, I was playing the music in my mind. Of, of the... 
I'm doing them all today. Uh, and, and, and what I love here is that, again, as an overall story, Sylvester has this experience with Tweety. So now he is narcotic as hell. Yeah. He is scared for his life. Mm-hmm. Which, which, thanks to some uh, to, to a phone call, leads Porky and Sylvester to go into claws for alarm. Yes. And it works so well story-wise. Yeah, no, it's great foreshadowing by them. Yeah. So when we get into claws for alarm, the opening uh, dialogue from claws for alarm is taken out as uh, Mel records some porky lines, mm-hmm. recontextualizing the short to, to the movie. So he was talking, talking. It's now in the eighties. Yeah. They arrive at the hotel, and the first line from the actual short that Porky says, again, thirty-year difference. Yes. Yeah. Twenty-five-year difference. Oh, there's gonna be a difference, but wow, that difference in voice for Porky. Here we are. Mm-hmm. In a dry gulch. Our first assignment. Golly, I've always wanted to go out west. Haven't you seen it, Sylvester? It's, it's, it's so quaint and picturesque. I don't think we're ever going to find any poltergeists out here. Dry Gulch Hotel. How opportune. Wow. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's not very subtle. But Claws for Alarm is still great, though. Oh, yeah. It's it's. I honestly still prefer um, Scaredy Cat, but Cause for Alarm is right up there with it. Yeah, and there's some great lines like Porky, like Tommy Sylvester. Is there any insanity in your family? Yes, and the and the entire ending where he beats Porky over the head because he wants to stay there. The ending, the ending is actually quite beautiful. Yes, like animation wise, mm-hmm. stuff of just like. The sun coming in at the hotel, and we cut the sister's eyes as we oh pan out, and his whole body goes in the frame. It's a great shot. And we cut to a beautiful shot of Sylvester standing outside the window with, with the shotgun he got from the mice, just looking at the window. It's a work of art. Mm-hmm. It's so goddamn good. <sighs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, no. The cause for alarm is pretty much intact. Um, we get the second um, of two of three commercials um, for Daffy's um, extermination business. This one also calls from water, water, every hair, the hairdresser scene. And about the, the, the catchphrase they have is, um, though I, we, we should probably say what it is. It's uh, spooked, spooked, goblins gobbled, UFOs KO'd, aliens alienated. That's two alien ones, by the way. Ah, yes. There's a difference between UFOs and then aliens, apparently. Vampires evaporated and monsters re-monsterated. Yes. Whatever the hell that means. Yeah. Whatever the hell that means. It's, it's a fun slogan, but they play it pretty much every time they do the commercial. And um, this segues us into the Duxorcist. And that one was... We found out yesterday that that one was 
made specifically for Daffy Duck's 50th anniversary. And I think that that one was made when Quack Busters was already sort of in production, but was made to, for specifically for the, the early release, but they knew it would probably be in Quack Busters. Yeah, so, so this short, it was not put in front of anything. It was played in some theaters in New York and Los Angeles. And of course, it's a big, important short because it's the very first Looney Tune short made since 1964. So it's a very big deal. It's the first they're back sort of deal. And yeah, it was for Def Duck's 50th anniversary. You know, uh, Bugs Bunny got uh, TV specials and whatnot. And um, Daffy Duck gets a, a short. Right. You know, that's, that's all he gets. You know, it's, it's, it's fitting of the Daffy Duck thing. You know. Um... The Duxorcist definitely does run on some Ghostbusters undertones. It's very reminiscent mm -hmm. of the scenes in Ghostbusters where Peter tries to exercise Dana. And this is... This has some good moments. Yeah. Um, though, however, I do think it is at this point that the reused music is incredibly... Obvious, mm -hmm. because one of the music cues that is used here is a scene where uh, Daffy is on the couch with um, the with the Dana, uh, yeah. I guess Melissa. I, I think. think she has a name. What's her name is? And every Looney Tunes fan knows the music to Rabbit Fire, mm -hmm. especially Rabbit Season, Duck Season. That classic bit. Everyone knows how it goes, and it is clearly the music that is used in the sequence, even when the windows are blown open and there's the whip, whip, whip. That's Daffy getting his bill blown off for the first time. Yeah. Everyone knows what that is. So while the idea of using the classic music bits is a well-intentioned idea, I think it's a really nice idea. Again, Lynching fan project. You're incredibly loyal. You're going to use original music. It's just that that could be a tiny bit distracting. A little, yes. Because you're watching this and immediately you're going, is that rabbit fire? Wait, wait, I... Yeah. But I, I did really like the little random use of, of real footage when Daffy opens the cupboard and it's just a random train coming out. And there are some really cool bits of this and, and just, you know, how they play with, with exorcism and, and, and all of that. So, it, it, but it also is an unnecessarily horny cartoon. <laughs> but there are, there are some great lines in here. Um, she says, oh, Mary had a little lamb and then the demon possessor says, but I ate it. It's great. That's the, moment and they go into a sequence where Daffy is a therapist and is just talking, trying to exercise the demons out and Daffy says, uh, oh, uh, you're blocking and then they just proceed, we stay on Daffy as they just play every Looney Tunes sound effect in the books yeah. 
This is a little over my head. Oh yeah, I, I, I was put off by that. Why didn't we show her? I don't know. Because she doesn't have much of a personality in this one. No. Uh, she's she's kind of just here for us to do Daffy's horny jokes. Mm-hmm. There's also a, a, a cute little uh, Jane Fonda gag yeah. where, you know, it's how to exercise. And, of course, it's how to exercise by Jane Fonda. I like that. <laughs> so, yeah, Dr. Sis is okay. It's 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 better in the context of this movie than I think it is alone. Um, and then after this, we have a phone conversation between Daffy and Porky that's done in a split screen, which is fun because Daffy eventually just reaches through the split screen and just talks to Porky that way. <laughs> All right. Yes, and this is where it gets real bad for Mel. Hmm. It gets... Really, because Daffy runs back from being chased by the ghosts, and the first line at Daffy's mouth, it's just Mel Blanc talking with a lisp. Mm-hmm. Phew, what a fiasco. House calls are definitely hazardous to my health. It's just Mel Blanc. It's not even Daffy's voice anymore. Yeah. So that, that I found kind of jarring. But, um... Then Daffy calls uh, Bugs Bunny. Yeah, and, and and that's when Daffy routes Bugs to, not Palm Springs, to Transylvania. Yes, and the background that Bugs pops out of, it's the background to Rabbit Fire. Yeah, rabbit seasoning. It, which it's, is cute. It's practically an exact replica, which is a very nice touch. Yes, it is. We're led right to Transylvania 65,000. Thank God. <laughs> Yes, I mean, and I, I uh, again, um, Mel does some uh, new Bugs lines. It sounds great. All the credit to Mel. It's a really good Bugs line saying like because in in the original short, he he needs the phone to, I, I believe, get directions. Yeah, mistaken. And in this one, it's I need the phone to contact Daffy. Mm-hmm. And also, we covered this short a long time ago now. Mm-hmm. But we, we stand by what we said about it. It's, it's great. Oh, oh, my God. Yes. It, it, it's still a great short. It's really funny. Yes. yes. I still think that, that Ben Fromer going, Oh, girls! This is one of the funniest things ever. Yeah. <laughs> but, um... This short is slightly messed with at the end. Yeah. Because at the end of Transylvania 65,000, a bug sings to himself. His ears turn into wings. He says, actually, never mind. I'm going to go fly off by myself. While in this one, Bugs is winning on the line for Daffy to pick up. And this is such a minuscule thing. I don't even know if you noticed it. They didn't quite cut it perfect. Yeah, I noticed that. For us, for a split, they cut it by a frame. This would be okay. For a split second, his ears turn into wings for like a split of a second. Yeah. So this was back in the flatbed days when before it was like, oh yeah, you could really digitally edit something. 
and get the exact keyframe yeah. you need. So I'll, I'll allow it. Yeah. All right. But, and then after this, Daffy gets a call from the Himalayas. Well, well hold on. There's also some tax jokes. Oh, right. Yes. We, uh, we kill some time with this. Mm-hmm. How do you kill time in a one hour and 17 minute movie? Mm. Also, Daffy sounds really good in this section. There's no consistency to it. No, and um, also I assume uh, this Himalayan bit did not age the best? Well, I do, I mean, in terms of like Mel doing this character, it hasn't, but I do like the, the detail that the monster is ruining tourist trade. That's funny. <laughs> And in terms of, uh, of of stretching the time out, um, when Daff, when uh, I believe Daffy calls Bugs again to get us into um, a bomb of Snow Rabbit, and we linger on a shot of a phone booth, yeah, for no reason, for no reason, we just linger on this shot. Like it, it's not funny. Like it, is the joke supposed to be ha ha? There's a phone booth outside of the castle. Which, if that's the case, that makes the entire point of Tensor Man 65,000 mute. Yeah. There's a phone booth right there. You could missed it. Uh, missed it. And uh, I just love Daffy uh, yelling, no, not Palm Springs. I love that. That's, that's a great I, runner. I love that runner. It's yeah. a good runner. Um, and, you know, of course, that brings us to Abominable Snow Rabbit. That's pretty much intact. I do love that, you know, the, it's very much hinged on the Palm Springs runner. And also, the dialogue, that, uh, the new dialogue that Bugs and Daffy have in arriving in the Himalayas. Obviously, it's been changed because originally in the cartoon they were on, they were, you know, going to Pismo Beach or whatever, and it was very much like, you know, Daffy thinking he was out there. And Daffy right. saying the line, what a way to, for a duck to travel underground, is a recycled line from Alibaba Bunny, done with new melody. No, it's not. It's the line oh, from Alibaba oh, Bunny. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, sorry. The line, but it's not the take. Why couldn't they have just taken the take from that line? Because Mel had to do a new one. Why not just go back to Alibaba Bunny and just take the line? Hmm. Uh, I don't know. Because, uh... Also, just because, you know, Davy says, you know, I'm going to go dig my way back, and it's 1980s mail, and when Daffy pops up out of the rabbit hole, it's uh, 1961 mail. Mm -hmm. And the difference is obvious. Mm -hmm. Oh, well. Yeah. There's still a little matter of this giant to take care of. Guess I'll backtrack a bit. I must have missed something on the way. But yeah, most of um, Abominable Snow Rabbit is there. Um, not a lot more to say about this one. We like it. It's a good one. Yeah, it's fine. We get the third commercial of three next, which includes another sequence from Water, Water, Every Hair, which is the um, the invisibility sequence. And I find it odd how it begins with them leaving. Mm -hmm. It begins with Bugs and Gosper leaving the lab, only to then have them, them come return back. to the lab. Yeah. yeah. Kind of counterintuitive, but, you know, they knew what they were doing. And, again, we, we needed to set up, but 
I I love the gag with the cutout here of Gossamer becomes very small. He always back behind the, uh, the counter. Yeah, has a hat on his suitcase, goes to a mouse hole, <laughs> takes out the mouse, and that's I where he lives. That. I, I that we need. I love that. that gag. Yeah, yeah, me too. I think that that would have been a perfectly good uh, sender. Yeah, but what I love is that happens, and they cut back to uh, Bugs. It's a slightly different sequence because every time they cut back to Bugs, Daffy, and Porky, it's the same animation. You know, here's a number, here's the animation. But in this last one, Bugs has an expression that just screams, I have to be here for just five more minutes, yeah. and I can go home. That's a nice <laughs> touch. Uh, he, like, he, he's... Yeah. <laughs> um, and that leads us to the next caller, who tells of an elephant in his birdbath. And we're into Punch Trunk, which is a rather yeah. obscure one-shot. That I only knew from this yeah, movie. It's the, yeah, it's the only one one shot short in this entire film. Mm-hmm. And this extends to being a conflict in the film, the, the events of Punch Trunken. It's not the entire cartoon. It's a great deal of the cartoon where it's just the elephants making everybody think they're crazy throughout the town. And there's a lot of really yeah. good little gags in there, but a lot of them are the same. Uh, I, I do like the, I seem to say, uh, recontextualization of... It's Dappy that calls a psych ward to get the person who called in. Yeah, that's that's a good retic. Yeah, I like that. Um, and this leads to a very Ted Koppel esque character on Frightline having Daffy on, and you know, of course, Daffy sees the elephant as well, and is the laughing stock of the nation. And Daffy is just losing his mind. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not my fault. It's the it's the TV station. Yeah. I'll sue. It's Porky's fault. Yeah. He's, and he's bargaining. You know, I think I think there's a certain former president who I think had this exact discussion with himself. You were expecting Calvin Coolidge. Not gun. <laughs> um. Uh, I, I mean, I just love the ending to the arc of this movie because Daffy's been humiliated on TV. He's bargaining by trying to pin it on Porky and then everybody else in the channel realizes he's lost focus, you know, going, what am I saying? Looks in the safe, reveals the money's gone as the Looney Tunes theme plays in loudly. I love that. Such a fan-driven thing. Oh, speaking of fan-driven, you know who shows up to give him the addiction then- notice? Egghead. Egghead of all people. Egghead, which we never covered on this show. We've never done Egghead. This is Egghead's first appearance in like 40 years. First appearance on on this show. And it's not Mel Blanc voicing Egghead. It's um, Mark Kausler. Okay. Mark Kausler does uh, Egghead here. And... No, it's just him. They'll sing the song about his getting evicted. And then he says, I assume some catchphrases from his shorts. Yes. Which... That's a deep cut. Again, that's... That is, again, a film made by a Looney Tunes fan. Knowing how would any of the Looney Tunes directors think, 
you know what we should put in this movie in our movie? Egghead. Friggin' egghead. <laughs> such Jesus. a niche thing that I can't help but respect it. I can't help. Yeah. And again, gotta give him credit for waiting till the very end to hold off on their hardcore Looney Tunes fandom. Yes. Which is the very end for that double punch of we're going to put the end of the Looney Tunes theme in here, and we're also going to put in a character that no one's seen in, like, 40 years. Yeah, that's just... Yeah, I give him credit for that. Yes. That's lovely. And I also just really like the speed at which everything comes down on Daffy after this, where his assets are seized, his building is condemned and then raised. He says the only... Everything is, you know, just... I forget the exact thing he says. It's like, you know, something about how everything is... Things need to start going up, and then that's immediately the moment where his his the building is blown up, and he's taken out on a on a wrecking ball. It's honestly very yes. cinematic, and a lot out of something out of a Terry Gilliam film or a Martin Scorsese film. It's like it's an epic film downfall, and it's very real, but it's just great. <laughs> and yes. after this, we get our epilogue, which is done up in like a in, in like copywriter text where it's Bugs makes it to Palm Springs and you know gets his fame and fortune and is reading about Daffy in the paper and saying oh Bishop but that was I'd hate to be him right now um yeah and and the on the newspaper says uh quack busted quack busted yeah says quack busted and Mel's last Bugs line is how about another carrot juice on the rocks? <laughs> Perfect last line. Exactly. That that's a bug's line to a T. Mm-hmm. Uh, Porky doesn't get that treatment. No, because Porky and Sylvester are still on assignments for Jumpin' Jupiter, um, and it's all archive footage. And it's it's the first yeah. minute of that cartoon, and fine, good, but you know he doesn't get really get a last Porky line in this, and. I love the little cut to J.P. Cubish is still dead. It's great. <laughs> and just a cut to his, his windy grave site. And then Daffy's still pedaling. Or he's back to pedaling. But, you know, he's, he's, he's trying to sell all these, you know, um, gossamer walking dolls or whatever. And he still can't make a profit thanks to the curse, you know. And J.P. Cubish wished, you know, poofing away all his money. He yells cubish to the heavens and we're out. And that's Mel's last daffy line mm-hmm. is saying a obscure character's name from a underview Daffy Duck cartoon. Well in the in the realm in the in the um you know in, in, in the context of this movie it makes the most sense. Daffy has screwed it himself does. over and he still he ends the film blaming someone else. Mm-hmm. Like, this is called Quackbusters, but Daffy is the only quack that was busted because he was deluding people into, you know, trying to, you know, steal their money, and he is left penniless because of it. So Daffy loses rightfully, and it's the perfect way for mm-hmm. this to end and for Mel Blanc to stop doing Daffy. So, you know, it's it's yeah. it's good closure. Good closure. Yeah. And the end credits of this... It's the nicest, most calming end credits to a Looney Tunes film, I think, ever. Yeah. 
Because it's just a nice piano version of Monsters Lisa's Interesting yes. Lives. While full short credits, including directors, writers, and animators. Yeah. That's, again, That's great. dedication. It's no, no. We're going to put the full credits at the very end. Yes. Which, that's very nice. It's, no, I mean, considering who's behind this, it makes a lot of sense. And we end with a, that's all, folks. Of course from we a, uh, What other way could it end? That's So, after all these years, I still kind of like this one. I Obviously, there are some issues with Mel's vocal quality, some incongruity stuff, pacing issues, but this was better than the last few. Had some nice originality in the story category, was definitely a labor of love for all the animators who'd grown up with it, and was a great step forward for the IP, one of the last few of such forward steps. So, I still really like this movie. I mean... Considering the previous films we had to watch, I really do think I like this movie more now than I did previously. Yes. Like, I think I liked it okay as a kid. Like, it was fine as a kid. I think now I kind of appreciate it more mm -hmm. because you have a different variety of short selection. It's not just greatest hits like Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner, but it's also not Bomb of the Barrel selections mm. like uh, Fantastic Island. No, there, there's not a bad selection in the bunch. Oh, it's a good collection of shorts that, especially in this one, fit much more together as a story. Um, as for any negatives I have with it, um, I did think sometimes the music was a bit distracting. Mm -hmm. And and also, I, I went a lot on Mel Blanc's delivery in this. We're not blaming Mel Blanc no. or voice director. No one was blaming or, Mel. Or voice director Gorn Hunt, who no. is a mega talent in the world of voice direction. I'm not blaming anyone for how Mel does the voices here. It's just, it's just that his Bugs and Porky were good throughout. It wasn't too bad. The main problem is is that Daffy's the only one that has this problem. And he's the star of the he's picture. He's the star of the picture. He has the most lines out of every out of everyone in this movie. So when you have these inconsistencies, it just kind of takes it out of the movie. Mm -hmm. Again, not blaming anyone. If you have no blame, you're going to use him. But, but yeah. Yeah. However... The animation is fantastic. Oh my god, the it's animation It's such leagues, it's such leagues and bounds better than Fantastic Island. Mm -hmm. It's, it, if I had to put it somewhere, I, I'd say I, I put between Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner and the Looney Looney Bugs Bunny movies yes. in terms of animation. Definitely. It's so much more fluid than Fantastic Island or A Thousand One Rabbit Tales. It's more on model, it feels more competently made. It's just, it feels. Like a movie, that was any sense? Yes. Like, not, not, for, not for a while have these films felt like a movie. Yes. And this one definitely felt like a movie. It, effort was put in. That's rare with these. And it just feels like a, a entirely 
finished thought a lot of the time. And I just, it's not perfect, but I enjoyed it. And I think there was a lot of good stuff in here. So in regards to my animal rating, I'm giving this a 3.5 out of 5 animals. Which is exactly what I'm giving it. It's, it's a good movie. It has some issues. But it's definitely a great send-off for a lot of the Golden Age ideas and a lot of these um, compilation theatrical movies. It is the end of an era... And is as respectful and substantial as it needs to be, despite not being perfect. So. Yes. So. That's the end of the compilation movies. Yeah, that was the last Looney Tunes movie. <laughs> as we conclude this, this section, what are our overall thoughts on these compilation films? Um, they're good. At their heights, they illuminate the best moments and best ideas of the Golden Age crew. And they illuminate the best theatrical exploits and aspirations of people like Fritz Freeling, Chuck Jones, and Greg Ford. At worst, they feel obligatory and meaningless and feel like they are done as a cash grab rather than an actual substantial film. Of the five of these, I would recommend, you know, Bugs Bunny Roadrunner movie, Looney 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 Bugs Bunny movie, and Quackbusters. Not the other two. But the other two do have some merit to different people, especially Looney Tunes historians. And Fantastic Island is still an interesting case when talking about the um, passage of ideas between creators. But um, I'm glad that I rewatched these for this. I'm glad that they're still out there for people to rewatch. And there's some good in them. Yeah. Um... No, that's why I, I, I was looking back at, at my notes, you know, like, like, what did I give these animal rating movies? And the highest rated one was a little, little bit of my movie. Uh, I believe I gave that a, a four out of five. Yeah, I think that's rating. what I gave it. Lowest, lowest was a 1.5 from Castic Island. Mm -hmm, makes sense. So, yeah, exactly. That's what I find so interesting is that none of these hit a five. No. You know, like... And some of these were, they were made by the people who made them, and even still, you give them to the original people, and you give the original voice actors, and you give animation from Warner Brothers in some of these, and it could still bring out such an okay product. Mm -hmm. Now, I do still believe if you gave the crew of the 50s Looney Tunes, it Back back then, yeah. If you were to say, okay, make a movie, mm -hmm. make a Looney Tunes, I'm pretty sure we could potentially have gone at the very least a four point five or a five yeah. five animal rated. I'll say it again: if Eight Ball Bunny had been made into a movie like we had theorized, like it, but it was supposed to, that would have been something really cool, and that would have been probably a great movie effort. But instead, we have these '70s and '80s ones, which are fine, but, you know, they're still inherently flawed in some ways, which, you know. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's see what you guys had to, had to say about this movie. Oh, yes. Hopefully some interesting things. I figured when we put out the, um, the, the, the comment on this tweet that, that my um, podcast partner from Varicon uh, at uh, the Brandon Hardy would have something to say because 
he has expressed to me that he's very excited for this episode to drop, Mark. And he was actually telling me about this line as we were recording another podcast um, about his favorite part from the movie, which he details here, uh, which is the line that um, uh, the other duck has during the duck assist, which is, uh, Mary had a little lamb, but I ate it. <laughs> that is a very quotable line. It is. You know, I mean, I mean, I mean, to think that a Looney Tunes short from this era has a quotable line that all Looney Tunes fans know. That's that's not that's not nothing. No, no, it 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 proves that like you know the the Greg Ford and Terry Lennon group that was doing a lot of the new new content and also the Duxercist were at least having the right ideas and the right motivations on their sides when they were trying to get these new loony moments on there. And yeah, it fits, it tracks, it's all good. Yeah. Yeah, and our second, uh, more of a question from uh, Spiderus at Spiderus Prime 2. They asked, wonder if Daffy will counter Shin Godzilla. Can confirm he does. Hmm. He indeed does. <laughs> no, I think you're thinking of Shin Smogzilla. Yes, yes. Oh, oh, oh God! It, it, it's that line from a uh, gold member. It's Godzilla. <laughs> Correction. Though it's not. Copyright. Masioka in his first screen role, pre-heroes. Uh. So yeah, uh, he, he does technically meet Godzilla in this film, and that's just so he does. Funny. He also technically meets Mel Torme in this film, but you know that's only sort of canon. <laughs> uh, so thank you, Brandon and Spiders, for your uh, comments this week. Yes, and I hope you enjoyed the movie and this podcast as much as we did. Okay, so before we get into next week's show, yes. This is episode 50. Yes, it is. It is the 50th episode we recorded. This is our 50th episode. So, I'm liking this. This is fun. I like it. <laughs> so do I. I hope you guys are liking it too. Um, I like that we can be goofs like this and talk about cartoons and actually <laughs> oh my God. do shit like this. So, this has been a blast. Oh my God. It has. Um, and we're, we're still going to be going. Mm-hmm. Um. We have we have some fun things planned. Yes, we do. Um, obviously, while this is the end of the compilation Looney Tunes films, these are not the last Looney Tunes movies ever made. <laughs> no, there's a couple more. There's a couple more, and we are planning to cover those. Yeah, um, um, we we have some plans for a few of them. Um, uh, we have some plans. Well. Uh, I don't know. Do you guys want us to do Space Jam? I, I don't know if there's a, there would be I mean, a lot of outcry I, for that. Maybe <laughs> an outcry for this podcast to do a movie that everyone... <laughs> Rest uh, assured, folks, but we also, will be looking at ones like Space Jam, Back in Action, and yes, Space Jam 2. Those will be coming soon. As well as, you know, as well as Tweety's High Flying Adventure. Who wants to see us talk about that? <laughs> Ooh, what's the, he's, <laughs> an original god damn it 
It took it took him till two thousand what like two or three yeah. to do a completely original animated Looney Tunes movie. Yep. What the hell? That'll be fun to talk about considering you love oh Tweety. <laughs> oh yeah. Um no, but also what we have uh coming up. Um we're a Looney Tunes podcast that came up in a time of the HBO Max Looney Tunes cartoons and we've never discussed them. Right. So uh we're we're going to be covering those soon. Mm-hmm. Um, we got some uh, as as you brought up a while ago. We will be covering the TV shows. Um, yes, better than we did in our second episode. That was a fluke. Do not put that in the record. That was one where I wanted to throw in Duck Dodgers because we were talking about Daffy Duck, and I had the perfect one. Yeah, and that baby Loon Tunes got thrown in there. Yeah, we're gonna be and doing legitimate but... looks mm-hmm. at the Loon Tune television programs yes. and and TV specials. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> both well known and regarded and weird. There's a uh, some odd ones in there. There's uh, some NFL anchors talking about Bugs Bunny Daffy Duck for now. Oh, boy. Interesting. <laughs> um, and yes, let, rest assured, we are still going to be doing some some shorts. You know, we still have some, some shorts yes. planned. But we do have some big aspirations for the next 50 or so episodes, or, or for as long as we, yes. or for as long as we want to do this. Um yes. Yeah. And will there be other people on because you've been hearing us for 50 episodes straight? Well, we're working on it. I don't know. We're working on it, okay? We're working I on can it. only really confirm one guest at this point, which will be coming very, right. you know, eventually. But we've been in talks right. with one or two other people. Um, yes. I'm not going to confirm or deny anything right now because we have to still make plans. But... I've had a I've had a yes or two in some directions, so um, yeah, look for that. But yeah, we have we have a lot more planned for you guys. I hope you guys have been enjoying uh, this podcast. We certainly have, and we want to do it for as long as it makes us happy. And we have a lot of more ideas coming on. And uh, like, what are we doing next week, Mark? I forget what what number fifty one is going to be. Well. Considering the tradition of putting something very fun after a movie episode, um, actually, it's kind of kickstarts. Uh, you know, it's so funny how I mentioned doing, we're doing TV specials because the next episode coming up is technically a TV special. Oh. But it's a pilot. Oh. It's Adventures of Roadrunner. Oh, okay. Yes. Yes, the Adventures of Roadrunner uh, TV pilots, a special made in uh, 1962. Okay. And it's a pilot for a Roadrunner TV show. Mm. And, you know, it, it eventually it got cut up into uh, three shorts, To Beep or Not To Beep, Roadrunner A Go-Go, and Zip Zip Hooray. So, because it fits our criteria... And it's a different type of thing. We're covering that next week. Awesome. I love Roadrunner shorts. <laughs> yes. We just get to talk about gags. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be fun. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. All right. That is the end 
of our 50th episode. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can follow me at Mark Hallam, 1995. And you can follow me at Tall Guy Schmidt. If you'd like to keep up with the podcast or give your thoughts for next week's episode, you can follow at that underscore loony or type in the podcast title, We Are the First Result. You can also find this podcast wherever podcasts are readily available. That includes your Apple Podcasts, your Google Podcasts, your Spotify Podcasts, Player FM, Anchor, any of those and more. We are out there. We will continue to be out there for maybe another 50 episodes, maybe more. You never know. (laughs) All right. So until next week, I'm Mark. And I've been Jordan. Thank you for sticking with us for 50 amazing episodes. Hopefully you'll be good to stick with us for... 50, hopefully, okay episodes. Like, unless I'll get my lawyer. Play that glorious Ghostbusters music. Yeah, 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 yeah.